I've learned a lot from the book of Genesis. So I've uh, so I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed it. However, I have to. It's always interesting because as you conclude one study and you prepare for the next, it's always kind of interesting because you get really excited about the next one. And um, so, but we can't forget that we still have a lot of good stuff left here in the book of Genesis. And uh, so, here's the thing I was thinking when I was getting ready for this particular uh, passage of Scripture. If somebody a hundred years from now, or 50 years from now, or 25 years from now, or after you're dead and gone, and they were to write a single sentence that typified or signified or exemplified your life, one single event that characterized who you were, what would that single event be? And I'm talking specific. In other words, I don't want to hear, well, she was a great parent. What I'm looking for is, what single event made you that great parent? Or, he was a great husband. No, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for, what's the single event? You know, well, he remembered his wife's birthday once. <laughs> that's the specific alright, that's the specific specificity that I'm looking for. Alright? He brought the roses. That's pretty tough. What single event would characterize your life? And the reason I bring that up and the reason I bring it up in conjunction with Genesis 48 is because when we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, chapter 11 is sometimes called the, the Hall of Fame of Faith, or the Roll Call of Faith, and it goes through historical characters and figures, and it talks about Abraham and Moses and, and Noah and Sarah, and all these very faithful people, and it describes various aspects of their life of faith. And when we come to Jacob... Now, here's the thing. If we were going to describe one event that characterized Jacob's life, what would that one event be? I mean, you might go back to, well, that was how about when he ripped off his brother of the blessing. That, that would signify... I mean, you could come up with a lot of negatives in Jacob's life. How he deceived his father and stole the birthright. Perhaps his faithfulness of believing God and working for 14 years to, to um, um, basically as a dowry for his wife. He loved it. Rachel. What single event then are maybe his faithfulness of believing God when God, when, you know, when he's... Uh, encountered God at Bethel, or perhaps believing God or wrestling with, with God that night by the, by the river. I mean, Jacob's a pretty complex character, and there's a lot of things that characterize Jacob's life. 
And so it's interesting because the author of Hebrews, when he looks back, he writes one sentence about Jacob. And this is what he says about Jacob. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now that just kind of, I don't know, that seems odd to me. Not odd like wrong, but just of all the things of Jacob's life, the one thing that the author of Hebrews points us back to is that at the end of his life, on his deathbed, Jacob blesses his kids. That's what he did. And he worshipped. I would apparently pick something else. But I'm not a divinely inspired author of scripture either. And so, when we consider what is written about Jacob in Hebrews chapter 11, I think that gives weight to Genesis chapter 48. And by the way, I also give weight to Genesis chapter 49 because that speaks. I think Genesis 48 and 49 is what's being referenced in that passage of Hebrews. That by faith, Jacob blessed his sons. Hmm. So as we get ready to look into Genesis chapter 48, we are looking at the end of Jacob's life. Jacob, as I said, is a really, really complex character. I mean, there are times when I'm looking at the person of Jacob and I am thinking, I really think this may be one of the most despicable men who's ever lived. I mean, the way he dealt with his daughter, Dinah, when she was violated, I'm just thinking, what a horrible human being. And then I think of Jacob and his faithfulness, and he believes in the promise of God, how God will be with him, and he's faithful in so many areas. I love the Bible. The great characters of the Bible are just really, really flawed. They look like a lot of us. They really do. But here's the thing. When Jacob gets to the end of his life, the last thing that Jacob does is an act of faithfulness. It's an act of faith. It's an act of belief. It's an act of believing what God has said. I think about Paul, and Paul came to the end of his life, and he says, man, I've run the race. I've finished the course. There's nothing left for me to do, man. There's now left for me a crown of glory. I'm done. And Paul could look back on his life and say, man, I did it. I don't know that I always did it perfectly. I don't know if I always ran as fast as I could, or if I was always right on course. But I got back on and I finished the course. There are many people in our lives who come and go and they, they may have started the Christian life really, really well. But now where are they? I look back at the college career group that I was part of when I first became a believer. And a very good friend of mine, Paul Suarez, was a friend of mine there. And I still keep in contact with him, one of the few who I saw contact with. And he served the Lord with great faithfulness. 
probably not perfect, but either one. And then I look at some other friends, and I just completely abandon the Lord. Genesis 48 helps us and reminds us of Jacob, who bumbled and stumbled and fumbled and tripped, but he got back up. And when it came to the end of his life, his last act was one of believing God. And so the value of Genesis chapter 48 for us is, first of all, it should be an encouragement to us to be faithful to the end. Even, and I'll expound on this, even as life gets really, really hard to be faithful. Because it is about how you start. You must start by believing God and repenting and believing the gospel. But it's also about how you finish. Another value that or importance in Genesis 48, first of all, it encourages us to be faithful to the end. But also we see that the conferring of God's blessing is the greatest inheritance that we can give. We have parents here, and we have grandparents in this room, and we often think of what can I do for my kids, what can I do for my grandparents. I think Genesis 48 helps us to understand that the greatest thing you can do for your kids and for your grandkids is to remind them and to instill in them the trustworthiness of God's blessings and God's faithfulness. And finally, one of the values and importances that we will see in Genesis chapter 48 is that worship is believing God. Sometimes we... We have all sorts of ideas about worship. We talk a lot about it, and we've defined it in a number of different ways. But here we're going to see that an aspect of worship is belief. Just believing God. Sometimes we, we limit worship to music. Music is worship, but worship is not music. That's why Suzanne is not our worship director. Music director, because music is an aspect of worship, but everything we do here when we gather together is an act of worship. When we pray, that's part of worship. When we greet one another, that's an act of worship. When we believe the promises of God that we read in His Word, that's an act of worship. When we read His Word, that's an act of worship. When we say Amen, it's an act of worship. When we invite somebody out to lunch afterwards, It's an act of worship. So, believing God is worship. So let's go ahead, let's read our text today. I'll read all of chapter 48, and then we will uh, look a little bit more closely at it. Now, it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names 
of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padam, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knee, knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all the day, all of my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Then Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, and it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He said, he also will become a people, and he will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall be a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So the basic setting of all of this is that Israel or Jacob, remember Jacob and Israel are the same person. Jacob was born Jacob and then God changed his name to Israel and we see that name being used interchangeably. And um, so we see that Jacob is basically he's terminally ill. He is near death. And so we have this deathbed scene. It's a fairly common fairly common in the book of Genesis to have a deathbed scene. And so here we have that. And on the deathbed, a couple of things that, that I want to point out is, first of all, well, this, this general idea is about the adoption of Joseph's two sons, um, actually Jacob or Israel's grandsons. But before he gets to the actual adopting of these two grandsons, he first recalls the blessings of God. And he goes back to Bethel. Remember when Jacob was fleeing his brother because he ripped him off twice? And uh, he's fleeing his brother and he's heading on up north to the north country. And uh, there, of course, he's going to uh, get married. But as he's going, the first night he's, he's sleeping and he has this, this vision of God and he sees this staircase or this ladder that actually a staircase that extends um, from heaven to earth and the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And God blesses him there. 
And remember also when Jacob is leaving the north country and coming back home after, what was it, 21 years? Um, and he's coming home, again he stops at Bethel, and again God, God appears to him. And again God reaffirms the promises, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you sons and daughters and a great people and a great multitude. And like the promise I made with your grandfather, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And so Jacob is now recalling these events of how he saw God. And he recalls the promises that God would make us a numerous people and give us the possession of Canaan, give us the land of Canaan as our inheritance. This, I think, is an awesome thought. God is going to make us a great nation and is going to give us the land of Canaan as a homeland, as a permanent home. It's an awesome thought because where is this event occurring? What country is this occurring in? It's occurring in Egypt. You'll recall that Jacob and his family were already residing in Canaan and things were kind of going along pretty good there. They were starting to get a foothold there and people were... You know, kids were being born and families and clans were growing. And then God took them out of Egypt, and, or took them out of Canaan and brought them into Egypt. Despite his circumstances, despite what the way things are... I mean, this looks like we're going backwards. And despite that, Jacob continues to believe the promises of God. He is not believing his circumstances. His circumstances are, man, I'm going to die in Egypt. And I will never ever see the land of Canaan. I will never ever see the land of Canaan again. All of my sons and all of my family members live in Egypt. One of my sons is a viceroy in Egypt. He's second in command. seems to me that Egypt's our home. We're doing pretty well here. We got good land, got good grazing land for our cattle. Our kids are growing. Families are prospering. My son's at the pinnacle of his career. We got political connections. We got military connections. We've got economic connections. We're doing really, really well. This is not our home. Promises of God are that God would provide for us the land of Canaan. We got nothing in Canaan. The only thing we got there is a gravesite that my grandfather bought. Otherwise, we got nothing. And yet, despite the fact that we got nothing there and everything here, this is not our home. This is not the place that God has promised us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Jacob does not see his homeland. Jacob does not see the promise. And the circumstances would indicate that promise isn't even close. And in spite of the circumstances, Jacob believes God. 
Jacob does not see the promise. He is far removed from the promise. But the Word of God, he believes. And the Word of God will not be shaken. And I just want to encourage us all today. Sometimes, oftentimes, we see the promises of God. We know the promises of God. And yet our circumstances seem to say that maybe they're not going to really work out. Maybe it even appears you're going backwards. You're moving further and further away from the promises of God. And I want to encourage all of us today, myself included, and all of you, that God's word is certain and his promises are sure. And I don't know everything that you're dealing with or all that you're going through or the trials and the difficulties that you've encountered. But I want you to know, here we can learn from Jacob and finish well and continue believing the promises of God. God has made great and wonderful promises. So that if you would believe the gospel, you would be saved and you will have a right relationship with him. He said, I'm going to go away and behold, I'm going to come again and get you and take you where I am. Well, how is that going to happen? It's been 2,000 years. Isn't that really going to happen? I look at the world and it seems to be crumbling, and, and it seems like evil's growing worse and worse. But what's going on? Do you not have control over things? Is there a God? Or perhaps this is all really like the naturalists will say that this is all just an accident and, and chance, and that there really is no purpose to this universe, and therefore no purpose to life. And God has said, No, I made you, and I created you in my image, and I'm performing you in the image of my Son, Jesus Christ. And I will come and get you. And there will be a day when I roll up the heavens like a scroll. And I will return. And I will come with the blast of the trumpet. And I will put things back the way they're supposed to be. I'm here to tell you. You're saying, I can't see that land. I can't see that promise. I can't see that promised land. I'm telling you, Jacob could not either. And he's going to die in Egypt. The people leaves. The promises of God. I read further on. I read in Exodus. And then I read in Deuteronomy and Joshua. And you know what? God did exactly what God said he was going to do. And Jacob's faith was not some giant leap of faith believing something that was untrue. He was believing the word of God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Some of your Bibles may even see evidence of things not seen. See, faith in God is not some giant leap of faith into the unknown just hoping maybe. For example, they say that faith is believing something we know is real. Biblical faith. Biblical faith is believing has has a weight because of not what we believe, but who we believe in. And we believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth. And he made you and me and he made us accountable to him. And this God who rules the universe and rules history is worthy to place our faith in. He's proven it over and over and over and over and over again. This is whom Jacob is believing. 
and this is whom I would ask you to believe. And Jacob goes on and he calls him God Almighty. You should understand that word, the Hebrew is El Shaddai, and we've encountered this name before. But you should know that word. You should know that title of God, God Almighty. It is not God sometimes mighty, or God partially mighty, or God 50% mighty, or even God 99% not mighty. <coughs> it is God Almighty, not God some mighty. Almighty. I think Jacob understands that if God is going to bring about what God said he's going to do, we're going to need an almighty God. God is going to make us a large nation. Remember, this is the very beginning of the nation of Israel. Right now, Israel, the nation of Israel probably consists of you know, maybe a hundred people. Maybe a little bit more. And they're not living in the land of promise. They're nowhere near it. And Jacob said, God's going to do what God said he's going to do. He better be that Shaddai. He better be the Almighty God. And I, I want you to know this term for God. Because whatever promise you're believing for God, whatever promise God has given in His Word, not one that you make up. You know, all make up things that God has promised you, whatever. God has promised me health, wealth, and happiness, and easy going, and no conflict ever in my life. You just made that up, by the way. That's nowhere in his word. I hope you get that. I pray that you would have that. I pray more that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, though. And here's the thing, conformity to the image of Jesus Christ generally requires <clears throat> bumpy roads. And when you are in the valley of the shadow of death, you will need El Shaddai. You will need an almighty God who can take you through that place. And to do so without wavering. So now, he recalls the work of God Almighty and he adopts Jacob's, I'm sorry, Joseph's two sons. So here's what Jacob is doing. Israel, Jacob, is having a meeting with Joseph, and Joseph's two sons, two of Joseph's sons, his oldest sons are with him. So these are Jacob's grandsons. And here's what Jacob does. Jacob tells Joseph, these two sons are mine. I'm claiming them for my own. Jacob takes Joseph's sons as his own. This was not an uncommon thing to do in the ancient Near East, to take a grandson and say, that's mine. And we ask ourselves, well, that's kind of a strange thing. I wonder why he does that. Why does he adopt his grandsons as his own and makes them his own children? Does anybody remember who Jacob's oldest son was? Starts with an R. Reuben. Anybody remember who's next in line? Simeon. Reuben and Simeon disqualified themselves. Look at uh, First Chronicles chapter five, verses one and two. 
think I have that up on the screen. Do we have that? Right? Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. He's the firstborn of Israel. Firstborn of Jacob. For he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So here's the thing. Reuben, basically... Reuben has disqualified himself. And in Genesis chapter 48, you see both Reuben and Simeon have disqualified themselves to inherit the birthright and to be the eldest ruling son. He confers that now to Joseph. And basically this is what he does. He gives Joseph a double portion. Remember, the oldest son gets a double portion, right? So how does he get Joseph a double portion? I'm taking his two sons and saying both of these guys are probably because you get a double portion. And the double portion is going to come through your grandsons or come through your son, my grandsons. That's kind of how this is all working out. So this is what's going on. I know it's kind of confusing because we're talking genealogies. And let's face it, there's nothing more scintillating in the Bible than the genealogy, right? Because I know when you want to be encouraged, that's where you turn. You all turn to First Chronicles 1, right? And you just read that over and over again. Oh, man, I can't And so-and-so begets on you, and you're just blessed by it. <laughs> Let's understand genealogies have their place. And this is what's going on. Israel adopts his two grandsons and basically exalts them Instead of this is the double portion. Instead of Reuben getting the double portion, instead of Simeon getting the double portion, Joseph, you're going to get a double portion. The way you're going to get is I'm going to adopt your two sons and give to them. This is kind of interesting. I don't know. Maybe this isn't interesting to you, but to me, I think it's fascinating. This is why there is no tribe of Joseph in the land of Egypt. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever even thought about that? Let's, have you ever wondered, when you look at the map of, of Israel and how the tribes got allocated their inheritance, have you ever noticed there's no tribe of Joseph? And did you ever wonder, I wonder why there's no tribe of Joseph? East Manasseh, West Manasseh, and Ephraim. Manasseh's on this side, Manasseh's on that. This is the Jordan River here. So we have on the east side of the Jordan River, on the west side, we have Manasseh and Ephraim. They become the inheritors of Joseph's birthright. And they get a double portion. There's the double portion. So that's why you don't have Joseph. Joseph doesn't get his own spot. He gets twice as much. And how does he get twice as much? Through his two sons, whom Jacob adopts. So anyways, if you're ever wondering, you're going, wow, I wonder why there's not a tribe of Joseph. Now you know. And of course, when we get to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, I'll confuse you all, because we see the tribe of Joseph listed. But I got a long time to work on that, so... <laughs> So basically now, so that's what's going on. Basically, there's this adoption of these two sons and these two grandsons and, and, and Israel is going to bless them. And so now comes the blessing. And I love in verse 11 the way um, Jacob brings this about. 
Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Folks, we need to understand that God is a God who does more than we could ever ask or think. I mean, here's Jacob. One day he's sitting at his house, and his sons come in with this torn up coat with blood all over it, and they say, this coat belongs to your son, and your son Joseph is dead. Of course, they didn't tell him they actually sold him into Egypt for 30 pieces of silver. Your son Joseph is dead, and for years Jacob thought, my son Joseph is dead. I will never, ever see my son again. Never. I want you to understand that's the way it looks in human thinking and in God's thinking. It is not only will you see your son again, but you will see your son's sons. So I guess perhaps for us, sometimes we live in the moment and we don't look at big picture stuff. And we look at our trial, we look at our difficulty, we look at the the things we're, we're, we're challenged with and we say, God... This is just a mess, and it'll never get worked out, but God sees big picture stuff. I mean, how many of you go through something and you look back and you see how God worked it all out? So how come now that you're in, a, in the midst of some issue and you're going, oh, I don't know. This is just going to be a mess. I want you to understand, God can do more than we ask or think. Jacob thought, I will never ever see my son Joseph. Not only did he see his son, but his son was the means of his deliverance, and he saw his grandsons as well. So we think that when we go through a trial or a difficulty that God has abandoned us. Why do we do that? I don't know how many people I know who have departed from following God because they go through a hardship or a trial. God must hate me, or there must not be a God, or how can we never think, I wonder what great thing God is going to be doing. I wonder what God is doing in all of this. Why do we go to, oh, well, he must not be a loving God. That's not the kind of God I want to serve. I'm leaving him. I want nothing to do with him. Why do we think that? That's a lie straight from hell. Your trial, I'm not here to minimize your trial or your difficulty. I'm just here, I don't want to minimize it. I do want to maximize El Shaddai. That's what I want to do. We should never shrink back in trial. God is not done. We might be amazed that God's work is far beyond what you could ever imagine. So here's my encouragement. Keep pursuing. Keep persevering. Keep believing in God. Trust Him. And then Jacob or Israel begins to bless Joseph's kids. And here's what happens. Joseph brings his two sons in. Manasseh and Ephraim, and basically he puts Manasseh, the oldest, by um, Jacob's right hand, and he puts Ephraim, his youngest son, by his left hand, because the right hand is the sign of power, the right sign of authority, the sign of blessing, it's the hand of blessing. So the oldest is supposed to get the blessing, right? So he puts Manasseh in a place where he can receive uh, the blessing with Jacob's right hand, and Manasseh is going to get you know, the leftover blessing. But Jacob crosses his hands 
and he puts his right hand on the youngest, and he's going to give his blessing to the youngest, to Ephraim. And here's the blessing. The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. That's just a, an amazing statement. Because here, before he really gets into blessing these kids, he affirms who God is. And we should pause and think about what Jacob believed about God. Because we can learn a lot about Jacob's God and our God through these words. The God before whom my fathers walked. In Hebrew, there is no that word before. There is no word for before in Hebrew. There is no word for in front of in Hebrew. There is the word face. So if you were to stand before somebody, you would stand to their face. Or in their face. I don't know what you would say. Get out of my face. <laughs> I guess you, that could be used in biblical Hebrew as well. The God to whose face my father, Abra my father Abraham and Isaac walked. We see that Jacob understood this idea of being in front of somebody's face has an idea of intimacy. He understood that God was an intimate God. He was not a God distant, but a God whom we stand in the presence of. He's not just out there who wound up the universe and got it started and then disappeared and has nothing to do with it. He's a God who we stand before and we live in front of. He's a God whose face we are before. It says that he that his fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, and this is kind of an unusual form in the Hebrew. It literally means to walk to and fro. And we see this of as an attribute of God. God, remember, it says that God walked amidst the, the camp of Israel. It's this exact same phrasing and the same grammar construction and all that. God walks to and fro. In other words, God just doesn't look upon the camp. He actually walks by the tents. And he walks in and lives the camp. God is an intimate God. And he walks to and fro. And Jacob understands who this God is. He says, my fathers, they walked to and fro, to and fro in the presence of God Almighty. We need to understand who God is. He is not a distant, cruel, uncaring being who dwells in a faraway place, but he is a God whom we live amongst, who fellowships with us, and we can have fellowship with him. He is also a shepherd. God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. He's a shepherd, dude. A shepherd guides us, he leads us. And Jacob realizes, man, I... I'm a stubborn sheep. I've grown off I don't know how many times. And God has always shepherded me back. God has always brought me back. God is my shepherd. I think David picked that up, didn't he? The Lord is my shepherd. I don't know where he got that. 
I'm sure he got it because he was a shepherd and he understood what it meant to be a shepherd. But I think Jacob was a shepherd also. They understood what it meant to have God as your shepherd. And then years later, one of the greatest speeches ever said, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I wonder where Jesus got that idea. I think he picks it up. He's going, I am the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am the shepherd of Jacob and David. And I'm your shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Well, Joseph's not real happy with this. In fact, in the Hebrew, basically, it's Jacob is, or I'm sorry, Joseph is irate. What are you doing? Conferring the blessing on the youngest. Don't you realize Manasseh's the oldest one? Ephraim's the youngest one. What are you doing? You're doing it all wrong, Dad. None of you have ever heard that before. And Jacob says, no, no, I'm doing this just right. Boy, there are a lot of parallels here with, uh, with Jacob receiving the blessing. But I won't get into that. Because J- Jacob blesses the youngest. This was common in Genesis, wasn't it? Isn't it? The youngest receiving the blessing. In fact, that's what we see all the way through. The scripture from Genesis, basically from well, Cain and Abel, all the way through, the youngest gets the blessing. The youngest is the one who is exalted. Here we see God's sovereign purposes and we see grace. This is all based on grace. See, who deserved the blessing? The oldest. Who earned the blessing? The oldest. To whom rightfully belonged the blessing? The oldest. You see, grace doesn't work that way, does it? Grace is unmerited. God's grace is sovereign. God's grace is never based on privilege. God's grace is never based on human reasoning. It's not based on heritage. It's not based on tradition. This was the whole speech, the whole conversation that that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus came and said, listen, Nicodemus was a good Jew. He had the right lineage. He had the right heritage. He was a son of Abraham. He was a Pharisee. He was a leader of Israel. And if anybody deserved God's favor, it was Nicodemus. Because he had the right parents. And what does Jesus tell him? You need to be born again. Your heritage doesn't do any good in the kingdom of heaven. Your heritage has nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. In fact, what you need, Nicodemus, is you need your parents. You need to do genealogy. You need to be born of the Spirit, not born of Abraham. I'll tell you right now, I can raise up stones to be son of Abraham. That's the problem. Paul goes on and says that he's a Jew. He talks in Galatians that we are all children of Abraham because we're children of the promise. You need a dad. You need to be born again. That's grace. 
Grace has nothing to do with heritage. It has nothing to do with lineage. It has nothing to do with privilege. It has nothing to do with birth order. It has nothing to do with how good you are, how smart you are, or how talented you are, how good looking you are, or anything like that. It has everything to do with God's mercy. And this is exactly what's going on here. Why is Ephraim exalted? Sovereign grace. In fact, Jesus goes on and he says the first will be last and the last will be first. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29, we're told that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He chooses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. God exalts the weak and the lowly and the humble. Why? Grace. I think that's what hinders people from coming to the Lord because so many people want to come on their own merit and in their own strength and with their own goodness and say, look, God, I've got this and I'll give it to you. And God says, it's nothing. What you need is grace. And grace is saying, God, i got nothing. i got nothing. And so when you take a nothing like me, people don't want to go there. Perhaps even people who hear that statement may have to come to God and say, I'm, I got nothing. Not even personal, it's such a, such a thought. But the rich young ruler would try to come with Jesus with all of his good works. I kept all of the commandments. Jesus didn't argue with him whether he kept the commandments or not. Jesus said, You need to lay all down. You got nothing. And when you come to the Lord with nothing and say, will you take a nothing like me? God then bestows upon you the spirit of his son, Jesus Christ. And you become an adopted son and heir of Christ. You then get everything. And then, as Jacob is about to die, he says this, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I give you a portion of that land. That's an amazing thing. Jacob right now is foreseeing the Exodus. We're in the land, but God is going to take you back. He is believing the promises of God. I'm about to die, but God is going to take you out of this land and bring you to the place he promised you. I don't know when that's going to be. I won't be around to see it, but I know God. And I want you, Joseph, to remember that God is going to take you out of this land and He's going to give you the land of promise. That He's promised it. You need to stay with that. So I'll conclude with this. A couple things we can learn from this. First of all, all of God's promises are by grace. If you receive anything from God, it's coming because of His grace. I know sometimes you think, oh, I've got a lot of good stuff and that must mean God has favor on me. Perhaps it does. Everything you have, though, comes from grace. Grace is unmerited favor. That's what grace is. It is favor that you didn't merit. And all of God's promises are based on His favor and His unmerited grace. Second thing I think we can learn is that um, imparting God's promises is the greatest inheritance you can leave. I know sometimes we think, well, what up? I need to make sure that my kids have a similar set of for college. And I need to make sure my grandkids got this. We've got a lot of grandparents here. We've got a few parents. 
And if you can provide a college education for your grandkids and your kids, that's great. If you can get them a new car, maybe get them started in business. You know, I, I was able to start a business because my dad basically gave me his house. He said, here, I'm giving you my house. I want you to know, parents and grandparents, the greatest thing that you can give your kids and your grandkids is not the college education, as great as that is, not the new car, not a business, not a house. They understand fully the promises of God. And that's what Israel is giving to his grandsons. You know the promises of God. I'm passing those on to you. The land of Canaan. and a people through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's the promises of God, and that's yours. You need to understand that. That's the greatest thing. And so if you do something today, go home and impart the knowledge of God's blessings to your family. And then finally, we end with this. By faith, Jacob finished well. The faith that Jacob exhibited on his deathbed became the singular triumph of his life. It's the one thing that the book of the author of Hebrews writes about. This one event, this event he considers worship. He considers this act of believing God as an act of worship. Believing him so much that he sets them, these two grandkids apart and says that the inheritance is going to come through you and eventually you're going to end up back in the land of Canaan and it's all going to be yours and God's going to give it to you and I'm just setting up, I'm setting up the inheritance right now is what he's doing. He's preparing the inheritors. That's considered worship. Believing God. Despite it doesn't look like God is doing what God's supposed to be doing, it looks like they're going backwards, and Jacob continues to believe God, and years, thousands of years later, the author of Hebrews says that singular act of faith is that Jacob's life. Of all the things that Jacob did, this act is the thing that says this is the act of faith that identifies Jacob as a man of faith. Believing God. And so we worship God when we believe God and we give ourselves into it, to Him. Jacob surrendered his life and the future of his family to God's word. He didn't say stay here in Egypt. Keep living here in Egypt. Things are going good for me. You can make a million bucks here. You know, listen, this is all temporary. You need to be living at Canaan. Because that's where God has promised you. That's where you need to be going. That's where I'm going. In fact, when I die, take my bones to Canaan. I am not staying here in Egypt. This is not my home. God's going to take you out. And so, by faith, Jacob believed God. That was an act of worship. And that was the singular event that the author of Hebrews thought significant to identify and to characterize person of Jacob. Jacob was an interesting character. He did a lot of things but by faith he believed God. Let's stand and let's pray.